Okay, we're going to start by, um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 20 today. This is where we've got to in, in our uh, survey through Luke's gospel, which is taking us um, a number of weeks and months. Um, it's fantastic to go through it and to sort of take the time to see what Jesus is all about and what he has to say to us. And, um, but before we get to Luke 20 today, I want to just zoom back out a little bit. One of the things I love about Google Maps, um, I'm a geography graduate, so I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to maps and geography and things like that. But um, I love with Google Maps the way you can zoom right in, you can get right to street view, look around, check out your location, but then you can also kind of zoom right back out and have a look at where you are in, in the bigger context. And what I want to start by doing is just doing that, zooming out a little bit from the passage and looking at some themes that come through the Old Testament that really Jesus picks up in this passage. So it's important for us to consider and, uh, and, and understand before we zoom back in again and see what he uh, has to say to us. So zooming out, first of all, uh, to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and Genesis 12. You don't have to look this up because it's going to be a fairly brief review as I go through. But firstly, considering um, Abraham. Abraham was a man that God called by name. God took him um, from a kind of pagan background. He's kind of a random guy, really. God took hold of him, called him, and he said to him, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and all people on earth are going to be blessed through you. Absolutely phenomenal promise from God, a phenomenal word from God. He said he's going to bless him to be a blessing. Now, when we think about this idea of, of blessings, it's kind of I think it's been sanitized, really, in our culture. We have this idea of, oh, bless, you know. We look at, oh, bless, bless you, oh, bless you. You're very cute. You might look at a picture of a, uh, of a little puppy or something or a, a small child and think, oh, bless, they're very cute. And we have this sort of rather sort of tame idea of what it means to be blessed. Whereas actually, biblically, what it means to be blessed is something hugely significant, as we're going to be seeing as we go through. And that was what it meant for Abraham. God blessed him. And what that meant was that God was saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to, I'm going to own your life. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to include you in my great purposes for the whole world. Absolutely phenomenal thing to hear from God. And that's what happened to Abraham. And we know through the story of the Old Testament that then Abraham... Uh, became a great nation. So the, the, the blessing, the promise was fulfilled to some extent. The nation of Israel um, were taken by God, uh, established in the land, established in the land of Israel, and God's kingdom blessing was seen in part through the nation of Israel. So reigns of, of people like David and Solomon, um, we see examples of kind of great blessing, a great kind of establishment of the kingdom of God um, in the land of Israel. Now, Isaiah, in chapter 5 of the prophecy of Isaiah, he describes this like God planting his people as in a vineyard. So he uses this language in Isaiah chapter 5. It says, I will sing for the one I love. This is Isaiah talking about God. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. The people of Judah are the vines that he delights in. Okay, so this was, this was an amazing place of blessing. This kind of picture of a vineyard. This was the place where God had chosen to dwell on earth with his people. And we see uh, in, the, in the book of Nehemiah later on, Nehemiah in chapter 9, he looks back and kind of narrates this for us and gives us a bit more uh, description of what this vineyard was like. It says, They lived in houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. 
They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. So again, there's this picture of the people of God established in the land, knowing abundance from him. They knew peace from their enemies. They were established under the covenant with God, with God leading them as their king. They were blessed. And they became a blessing to the other nations surrounding them. But God's intention was never just that the blessing would just be for them, but it was always, as he'd said to Abraham, that all nations would be blessed through them. This was part of the calling that the nation of Israel carried throughout their history, that they would be a blessing to all nations. But then, as we know from the story of the Old Testament, they failed miserably, really, in that calling, and they didn't remain faithful to God's covenant, and they didn't produce blessing for others. And Isaiah, back in his... uh, chapter 5 he talks about the vineyard it goes on to say this then he looked for a crop of good grapes but it yielded only bad fruit now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard what more could I have done for my vineyard when I looked for good grapes why did it yield only bad now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed I'll break down its wall And it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. Okay, so as we we zoom on a bit further, we see that this is what happened. Sadly, uh, Israel was defeated by pagan superpowers like Babylon and Syria, taken off into exile. The blessing was lost. The blessing that they'd known in the land was lost. The vineyard did become a wasteland. And although God brought the exiles back to Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple to some extent, they were restored in the land it was never to the levels of blessing that they'd known previously under the kind of good old days of Solomon and David. Then what we see is that God starts to speak a new word through the prophets. He starts to say, I'm going to do a new thing. In spite of you, in spite of of your unfaithfulness, I remain committed to my promise and plan that all the nations will be blessed through you. God doesn't change. God uh, reaffirms his promise. And he starts to say now that I'm going to bring this about through the Messiah, through the king that I will raise up. There's this new promise of a Messiah. As we zoom in a little bit further then, we're zooming down uh, into Luke's gospel. We see we're in the lifetime of Jesus now. We have this history of Israel behind us. We're looking at the time of Jesus. It's the first century AD. Israel is oppressed under a new pagan superpower, Rome. But there's a sense of expectation. There's a sense of their story being an unfinished one. It's been a long time, but they're waiting for their Messiah to come. That's the context that Jesus comes into. And so Jesus comes in and starts to proclaim, the kingdom of God is here. I'm here. I've come. I am this one that you're waiting for. That's his ministry. That's what he's saying. That's what he's been saying all the way through Luke's gospel. The kingdom of God is here. I am here. There's healings. There's miracles. All signs of the kingdom. All signs that the kingdom of God has come and that its king is here. And then you know, very much through, through Luke's gospel, we see that this is it's for Jews, it's for the people of Israel, but we also see hints that it's for others as well. We see the healing of the centurion's servant and other stories like that where we see glimpses of this is for the nations. What Jesus is doing here is for all people. Jesus is quite literally the hero of the hour in this story. But with every action story where you have a hero, you also have baddies. And like baddies in a bad action film, we then see the Pharisees, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, hove into view. 
And as we zoom through the Gospel of Luke, we see that they've not been fans of Jesus right from the start. And this culminated in where we got to last week, um, where Johnny brilliantly was drawing us to this kind of collision point that there was when Jesus came into the temple. He came into the temple, came into Jerusalem, entered the temple, uh, and had this collision point with the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And as, as, as we were hearing last week, it was all over. Who owned the temple? Who, what was the temple about? The chief priests, teachers of the law, thought it was their ground, thought it was their place. But Jesus is coming in saying, no, look, I am what the temple is all about. The presence of God is here because I am in the room. And again and again over the recent few weeks, we've seen that Jesus has warned the people of Israel and their leaders not to reject him, to open their eyes and to see this is the time of God's coming. This is the fulfillment of everything that the prophets have spoken about. But again and again, they refuse to listen to him. It's really a, a tragic story in that sense. And we see this tension reach fever pitch Luke chapter 19, verse 47, what we see is something new is revealed to us by Luke, and that is the motives of the hearts of the chief priests and teachers of the law. We're told in Luke 19:47 that, that they want to kill Jesus. So for the first time we see this is where they've got to. They don't like him to the extent they want to kill him. They want to get rid of him. So they're there. They're in the temple. Jesus is teaching. The crowd is hanging off his every word. They come to him, question him about his authority. He publicly outwits them. And then he, draw, he tells this story that we're homing in on now to drive the point home. So Luke chapter 20, verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, familiar language, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat, treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, They talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Okay, so when Jesus tells this story, here's what the people would have known. They would have known from their background, from the Old Testament, they'd have known that the man who planted the vineyard was God. They'd have known that the vineyard was the nation of Israel that God had decided to bless and live with, the nation that carried the promises of God. They'd have known that the servants were the prophets who again and again were rejected by the leaders of Israel. So what Jesus does is he, he, he builds on this background that they would have had and he reveals some new stuff to them. God has now sent not just a prophet, but his only son, his heir. Again, he's just reiterating, this is who I am. I am the heir. I am the son of the living God. He also totally calls out the chief priests and the teachers of the law. I think this is fascinating that a few verses earlier, we've been revealed that they decided to kill Jesus, and immediately he's calling them out on it through this parable. Their motives are that they want to kill him. He then predicts the fact that that will happen predicts his death he will be killed he will be thrown out of the vineyard 
but God will come and judge them. And this is where we've really reached a climax in this kind of tension point between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. Up to now, he's been warning them against uh, rejecting him, and now it's like their chance has gone. Murder has entered their hearts, and Jesus is just pronouncing through this parable judgment on them. And he's saying, God is going to take this vineyard away from you, and he's going to give it to others. When the people heard this, picking up in verse 16, when the people heard this, they said, God forbid! Jesus looked directly at them and asked, well, then what is the meaning of this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he'd spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Now, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they kind of missed that last bit, the bit about the cornerstone. They were sort of stuck at the owner will come and kill the tenants and give the vineyard to others. But the crowd, the people, are left pondering what Jesus was talking about here. This, this well-known quote from Psalm 118. This was a psalm that they themselves had quoted days earlier when they'd welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. When the, remember that story of Palm Sunday? When they were welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, they declared, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was a quote from Psalm 118, which was a recognized psalm about the Messiah. So Jesus is quoting it to just remind them again of that message. I fit that bill. That's exactly who I am. But why is he quoting this slightly obscure part of Psalm 118 to them? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, he's driving this point home that he said in the parable. The son in the story is going to suffer. He is going to be rejected. He is going to be killed. But that's not the end. He will be vindicated. He will become the cornerstone. So it's like through this parable, Jesus as the master storyteller has been looking back, reviewing the history of Israel, uh, kind of interpreting events, what's happened. But then now he's looking forward. He's hinting at God's future plans. And the, point, the whole point of the story is that God hasn't changed. He is still as committed as ever to his plan to extend Abraham's blessing to all nations. And this is exactly what Jesus is announcing here. Really, this parable, this, this passage here, represents a really pivotal moment, not just in the Gospel of Luke, but in the whole of salvation history. It's not an overstatement to say that. What Jesus is announcing here is that there's about to be a changing of the guard. The nation of Israel, as represented by their leaders, are going to reject God's Messiah. They're going to reject God's Son. But God is going to bring him back to life. As we know, he's going to be resurrected and then he will become the cornerstone on which the future kingdom will be built. And all of the kingdom blessings of God, the blessings of abundance, the blessings of fruitfulness are going to pass to new tenants. And of course, that's where we come in, in the story. That's where how we are connected to this story. It's a bit like, up to now, we've been kind of watching the story unfold, but not from the stalls, not from the audience. It's like we've been watching the story unfold from the eaves, from the, from the sidelines. And, and we've been marveling at this amazing plan of God being worked out. We've been marveling at Jesus coming as king and, and uh, announcing who he is. And then it's like we've just been given a little nudge in the back. And it's like, oh man, crikey, we're on. This is it. Suddenly, we're on the stage. The lights are on us. 
This is our part in the story. We are now the tenants in the vineyard. We are now the people to whom the vineyard has passed to. We are the ones who have received the blessings of God and this incredible mandate to extend God's blessings to every nation on earth. It's a big calling. It's a big calling. And we need to think about now, what I'd like to do is kind of start to apply this to us to help us to think about, well, what do we then need to do to make sure we're producing fruit? Because just like the tenants in the vineyard, the owner sends servants and asks for fruit. So when God comes and asks us for fruit, how do we need to ensure that we are producing good fruit? And I've got three ways. This is a bit of a classic three-point sermon from here on in. I hope that's okay. <laughs> We've got three ways to ensure that we can produce good fruit. And what that means is that we're carrying on the ministry of Jesus and extending God's kingdom blessing to the nations. It sounds very grand, but that is what our calling is as the church. That is what our calling is as Christians. So just want to draw a few things out here for how we can ensure we're producing good fruit. And the first thing that we can do to ensure we produce good fruit is we can know where we are. Again, Google Maps, I love that image of zooming in, zooming out, and helping us to pinpoint exactly where we are. And You zoom right in and you kind of get to street view. You can look around and survey the scenery, and then you zoom back out. And you know you do that thing where you kind of slip on the wheel, and you suddenly zoom out and you've got the whole globe You've got like the whole world and you're like, hang on a minute, I'm just trying to get to Merry Hill. I don't need to know, like, you know where it is in relation to Papua New Guinea or whatever. But you can do that sometimes. But this is what we can do. We can zoom all the way back out and set ourselves even in a global context because that's how big God's vision is. God's vision is for the whole world. But before we do that, we need to zoom in. We need to zoom right in. And that's what, this is what this is about, okay? Zooming in. We need to understand as a Christian the ground on which we stand. And this is really, really important. We are in that vineyard, that beautiful, lush vineyard. We are in it. And this means that we've been blessed. We've received the blessings of God. Now again, with this whole word blessing, I kind of hesitated really to use it, but it is a biblical word, so I want to try and kind of reclaim it in terms of the biblical meaning because it does have some, (laughs) some baggage and some connotations for us. Another way that we can miss see this is is the idea of prosperity. Oh, God's blessed me. Oh, he's blessed me with the latest iPhone. Oh, I'm really blessed. Oh, he's blessed me with a wonderful car, a wonderful holiday or something. That's not what this is about. This is not about prosperity. Although sometimes God does bless us. God's generous. He's lavish. Sometimes he does give us what we need and more. But that's not the point. That's not what his vision for the whole world is about. This is about the blessings of the kingdom of God. And that means the beautiful rule and reign of Jesus Christ in our lives. And uh, in Romans, Paul talks about the kingdom of God. He says it's a matter of righteousness, joy, and peace. Those things are the things that we can know and we can enjoy as Christians. The righteousness, the joy, the peace, the shalom, the kind of wonderful uh, peace of God in our lives. That's, that's, that's what God's brought into our lives since we've become Christians. We need to get to grips with passages like Ephesians chapter 1, where it says, Praise be to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has blessed us. We are blessed. You know that thing where someone sneezes and we say, Oh, God bless you. That's kind of theologically questionable, actually. (laughs) Because, really, God has blessed us. We don't need to ask God to bless us. He has blessed us. 
in every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1 goes on to list some of these amazing blessings that we have. We've been chosen by God. We've been made holy and blameless in his sight. We've been adopted as his sons and daughters. We've been freely given his grace. We've been forgiven of everything we've ever done. Given wisdom, understanding, given the Holy Spirit. Anyone excited about this stuff? Great. (laughs) It is amazing. It is absolutely phenomenal, the blessings that we have as, as the people of God. And the thing about this stuff is that, because often you, you, don't, you, can't, you can kind of not feel this stuff. So often you can kind of maybe not feel, you know, forgiven or blessed or chosen or whatever it is. But the thing about GPS map positioning is that it doesn't lie. You know, if we were to close our eyes and imagine that we were, I don't know, maybe back home in bed. Perhaps some of us would imagine, want to imagine that right now. Or let's just imagine that we're in Barbados or somewhere. You know, that would be a nice thought. But the reality is, if you got your phone out and went to Google Maps, your GPS positioning would tell you that you're in Lords of Girls School right now. <laughs> in, in rainy Bearwood, unfortunately. And, and that, it doesn't lie. It's an objective fact. And if you're a Christian, the objective fact is that you are in that place of blessing. God has put you in that place of blessing. So when we forget this, when we lose sight of this, that's when we can stop bearing fruit. So if we know this stuff, if we are strong in this stuff in ourselves, we will be fruitful. So sometimes maybe we need to zoom in. And for some of you guys here, perhaps that's the main thing you need to take from this. You need to zoom in and remind yourself of where you are. You need to go to street level and have a look around at the scenery. What does that look like? Well, it can look like getting into the Bible, reading books that are going to help you apply this stuff, looking at the passages that talk about who you are in Christ, worshipping, thanking God, almost as a discipline, you know, no matter how you're feeling, saying, God, I thank you that I am adopted as your child. I am forgiven. I've been given all wisdom and understanding. I have the Holy Spirit. You know, doing that kind of stuff, celebrating who we are. All of us, to some extent, need to build this into our walk with God. So we need to zoom in. But we also need to zoom out. Because the danger of just zooming in is that you can become fixated on your little patch of vineyard. You can almost become individualistic about it. It's almost like, well, as long as I'm enjoying my blessing from God, then I can survive. Maybe occasionally if something comes along that that threatens that, we can come to God and, and, and ask for help. But the thing is, if we only do that, if we don't see the bigger picture as well, what is we can start living subsistence instead of surplus. Okay? This is how the leaders of Israel were living. Although they were in the place of blessing, they'd lost the bigger picture. They were only producing enough fruit for themselves, not for others too. It was like they couldn't see the wood for the trees or, or the grapes for the vines or whatever it is. And in Isaiah's prophecy about the vineyard, he says that in those days it was like a hundred acres of vineyard was only producing like 20 bottles of wine. So there's like not enough fruit being produced. And I can't tell you in no uncertain terms, that is not how it's supposed to be. That is not God's will for our lives. His will for our lives, for each of us, is that we are fruitful, is that we produce an abundance of fruit. And in order to do that, as well as zooming in, we need to zoom out. We need to climb up that watchtower, get a wider view, remember where we fit in God's eternal purposes. And you can look at it like this. Has Jesus saved us because he loves us? Yes, 100%. Has Jesus saved us and blessed us so that we can extend that blessing to others? Yes, yeah, even more true, 
110%. Has Jesus saved us and blessed us so that we can extend the blessing to others in order that he might be glorified as king? 150%. (laughs) Even more true. That's the bigger picture. Jesus, in his his, uh, amazing kind of sermon on in John 15, where he talks about being the vine, he says, it's to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. That's what happens when we bear fruit. We show people that we're God's disciples. So you might ask, well, okay, so is bearing fruit about telling people about Jesus? Is it kind of, you know, posting on the breakthrough walls every five minutes about kind of, uh, I know, amazing conversations we've had, that kind of stuff? Well, yes, it is that stuff. And if you're doing that, fantastic, keep going. But it's not just that. Because you might think, well, I'm not in that place. I'm not really doing that well. Maybe I've got questions, maybe I'm struggling, maybe I've got things that, that kind of restrict me. Well, do you know what? You need to hear this. If that's you, you can still bear fruit. And God's will for us is that we all bear fruit. If you've got struggles, if you've got things that are holding you back, then this is what bearing fruit might look like for you. Perseverance. Perseverance through difficulty. You can bear fruit by doing that. You know, it says in the Bible that if you persevere, it strengthens your faith, which is more valuable than gold. So that's fruit. That's fruit. And also, if you think about it like this, if you're, if you're having a difficult time and you trust God and you, you keep on hanging on to him, then the people around you will see that as well. So that's also bearing fruit. And you'll show that you're Jesus' disciples by your perseverance. Alternatively, if you're, if you're struggling, if you're going through a tough time and you let go of God, you stop trusting God, then you won't bear fruit. Okay, so we, we can all bear fruit wherever we are at. Which is a great thing. I think that's incredibly encouraging. So, we need to zoom in and zoom out and see where we are on God's map. Secondly, we need to know that we are a tenant. We need to know that we're a tenant in the vineyard. The problem with the leaders of Israel is that they were acting like owners instead of tenants. This crazy thing where they think if they kill the heir, they'll get the place to themselves. As if. If you kill your landlord, if you kill your landlord's son, don't you think your landlord's going to come and, come and kind of uh, act out some retribution? They completely lost sight of where they were. They completely lost the, pot, the plot. And when Jesus came, of course, they failed to recognize him. And God, for his part, was gracious with them. Again, back to the parable, what we see is God sent messengers. As we were hearing about a couple of weeks ago, he was offering them terms of peace. He sent them one, two, three messages, and then he sent his son. Even the language hits, perhaps they'll respect him. There's almost a sense of like, surely they can't reject my son, my heir. God was gracious to them, but they totally lost the plot. And when we forget God, when we remove God from the equation of our lives, even for a minute, very quickly we can start to take ownership. We can start to act like we're the boss, like we're in charge and start making decisions based on our own agenda. And what happens when we do that is that our perspective shrinks and it becomes just about us. What this meant for the leaders of Israel was that they crafted for themselves a comfortable existence. They that they clung on to their power, their sense of importance, their position within Israel. And when it was challenged, boy, did they react. Now, here are some of the ways that we can do this. 
okay? As Christians even, we can, we can do this. We can start to take ownership of our own lives. <coughs> ambitions. Our ambitions is a big area in which we can do this. Now, many, many ambitions are good. Many ambitions are godly. But we need to watch this area of our lives because often we can start to want to make things happen in our own strength. And here's quite a good kind of acid test of this. If you're praying prayers like this, this is slightly caricature, but bear with me. Okay, God, come on, this is my life here. Come on, we need this sorted out. Come on, we need you to do this. Please, can you make this happen for me, God? That might be a little indication that perhaps you're treating yourself as the owner rather than the tenant, perhaps. It can happen in all areas of life. It can happen in job, career. It can happen in relationships. It can happen in houses, even ministry in the church. Just subtly, the focus can shift and we can see ourselves as the owners of our lives rather than the tenants. The other thing that we can do is that we can start to focus on the things that make us comfortable, the things that make us happy, or maybe the things that build our image or our reputation. Because when you forget God, it's all about you, right? And you've got to build yourself. You've got to fight for your own uh, identity. This is all dangerous stuff, that we can become masters of our own destiny and, and, and forget God's. I'm only going, only kind of skimming the surface with this stuff, really, because there's a lot more that could be said about this. But just to kind of um, cap it off and to really state very simply what the solution is, if this is happening in your life, it's very simple, really. The solution is you need to give it up. The solution is you need to give it up. Jesus said, if you don't give up everything to follow me, you're not really my disciple. Those hard words, but they came out of his mouth. They're true. See, the Bible says that you're not your own. You were bought at a price. And that price was Jesus' own life. Now, Jesus gave up his life for us. Let's come back to that. Zoom in on that. He gave up his life for us. Therefore, we need to give up our lives for him. It's simple, really. Jesus is Lord and he must have the central place and the last word in our lives. So I just, just encourage you to think about that. Maybe kind of take some time to reflect on that. Is there any area, any ambition in your life where you're taking ownership again, where you need to give it back to God, give it back to Jesus? Final thing that we can do to ensure that we're fruitful is to make sure that we're building on Jesus. Okay, So having given the control back to him, having said, yes, okay, I'm just a tenant in this life, you're the owner, this belongs to you, everything I have, everything I am belongs to you, you're the owner. Then we can build on him. See, the parable is going somewhere. It's going in the direction of judgment for the tenants who reject the son. And then this incredible phrase we've touched on already, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's this sense in which Jesus kind of directs you in one way or the other. You know, if you build your life, imagine you're building, you're building your life, you're making a kind of china pot for yourself. Well, if you drop that pot on a stone, it's going to fall to pieces. Or if you drop a stone on that pot, it's going to be crushed. That's the imagery Jesus is using here. So you've got to build on the cornerstone not fall on the cornerstone. And just to round it all off, there's some great application for us as a body, as a church, as a people. Because again, back to where we come in the story, 
This is the direction that it's gone. Jesus is Israel's promised king. He is the cornerstone on which God's building the kingdom. That's what he's proclaiming. He's the cornerstone. And as God builds that kingdom, he's extending the blessings to all the earth. And that's what the church is. That's what happened in the book of Acts as it explodes. And we've seen over the last 2,000 years of history, the church has grown. This is God's plan for the, for the earth. This is zooming out on a big scale. This is what we're part of. We're part of God's plan. We're not disconnected from all this stuff. Just to finish off with a quote from Ephesians 2. This is what it says about us as, as the body of Christ. It says, you're no longer foreigners. You're no longer strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's a description of who we are. Absolutely wonderful. We are God's new community. We're living under the blessings of the kingdom. We have the presence of God. And what that means for us in terms of how we can approach church, we need to approach it with reverence and expectancy. We need to come expectant because the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is here. He's alive. He's with us. As we, as we pray for one another, as we worship, we can expect things to happen. We can expect life change. We can expect uh, things to be happening through us as a body. But also we come with reverence. This is like, this is God's plan. We're part of something here that's huge, that's got eternal ramifications. So we need to, we need to be reverent as we come together to God, but also in the way that we are with each other, in how we manage our own relationships together. If we do that, if we cultivate the church together, then we can produce fruit and God can use us to extend his kingdom here in Birmingham and beyond.